Okay, let's have some fun. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to InsureTech Amplified. Today should be a very special episode. We are joined by Adi Kaimowitz, the group CEO at Virtual Actuary, and the author of a new book. I love when people write books. Entitled Slaying Giants in the Mega Gig Economy, How Small Beats Big in Today's Business World. I love the title. I read the book. We should talk about it. Anyway, thank you so much for doing this. It's great to have you on the show. Welcome back. We did a a show it must have been like two years ago now, no? I think so. Time flies. I think it was about two years ago. Yeah, it really was. So can we just jump right into this book? What was the inspiration for writing it? Thank you, and thanks for having me on again. Super excited. I was doing quite a lot of conferences in 2019 where I was invited to speak about our new age business, <laughs> digitization, this right. is pre-COVID, yeah, yeah. and um, I was talking about things like Zoom and Slack and decentralized teams, virtual consulting, so I was getting invited to speak at a lot of conferences. One of those was a learning institution, a teaching institution with wow. a huge national budget, and they asked me under the end of your function, could I do a one-day workshop oh, Okay. That, that they would then roll out? So I put together a one-day workshop, which I believed was a four-and-a-half-hour speaking arrangement. Yep. One-and-a-half hours in the morning, tea, one-and-a-half hours, then lunch, one-and-a-half hours, then tea, then a and a Right. Now, clearly, I don't go to these one-day workshops because that's not actually how it worked. Appar works. Apparently, it's fun and games and books and, you don't actually, and, and, and workshop books. You don't actually need to speak the whole time. So I didn't know that. Right. So I put together the content to be able to speak for four and a half hours. I, I laid it out and I never got booked. <laughs> so I decided since I had the skeleton of what could be a book, then I would turn it into a book. And that became the, that began the four year journey of actually writing the book. So I think about this a lot, right? And I'll tell you why. Kara Swisher, who's a famous journalist, now podcaster as well, but she started something called All Things D with, I think it was Walt Mossberg when they were both at the Wall Street Journal. And she said one of the things that she did early on in her career was she wrote a book about AOL. I think it was the AOL and Time Warner merger. I can't remember what it was, but she did this book about that. And she said at the end of the day, it was the greatest thing she did because now she was an author and she could literally hand out the book to people. It's a physical manifestation of all these thoughts that she had. She said that was better than any business card she ever had. She goes, yeah, I'm the author of this book about AOL kind of thing. So you should be able to do that as well, yes? What has happened is the ability to talk about our business has now tipped over. Because if you're speaking with, let's say, investors, they want to see quite a summarized pitch deck. Right. And so you, you always have to trim down the pitch deck. But this way... Instead of saying, well, here's our pitch deck, you can sort of casually say, well, I could give you a pitch deck about our business, but you know what's even better? If you enjoy books, here's a book which gives quite an in-depth breakdown of our business. So if you like to read it, don't worry about the pitch deck, here's the book. So you actually get a 280-page pitch deck. Right. So it teaches about digitization and, and that kind of stuff anyway, but I do throw examples about our books. So it is very useful. I found it super useful and I found myself like nodding my head when I was reading it. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I want to talk about some of this stuff in detail if you don't mind, right? I don't want to give the whole thing away, but there's some really great stuff in there because a lot of these are thoughts that I've had, 
but have not put into like official thoughts and words like this. I love the way you say, and maybe you can run me through this. The average person now has the ability to operate like a corporation, right? Virtual assistants, legal documentation, all these things. And this gets into your idea of deconstructing the fourth industrial revolution. Maybe you can just run through that to start with. Well, the main thing from about the year 1995 till about 2010, let's say, was that in the early years, the big corporates had a moat around their ability to service other large institutions. The barrier to entry was so great. You needed the big offices. You needed all the equipment, the server in the basement, the computers. The average person just couldn't compete because there was a moat around the ability to even get started. Yeah. And so technology has enabled us with just a device in our pocket, ongoing internet and a laptop to be able to do exactly what the greatest corporations 15 years ago could do instantly. So, so that's why the average person's starting point is sitting on the sh shoulders of giants. That's not actually the reference for the word giants, but our starting point is a lot better than the best of the best 15 years ago. In a way, it almost mirrors the development of AWS, right? I mean, you, you talk about this a little bit in the book as well. But when AWS got developed, it, it basically said to anybody who wanted to start a company, don't worry about the back end tech stuff. We got that sorted for you. And they weren't the only ones that did it, right? So there are tons of companies that do this now. And it's not just the cloud computing, but it's just the ability to build your own website, the ability to like have your own branding, all these kinds of things now you can do. And I want to talk a little bit about video meetings, which is something that you reference in this book, right? And I want to give you an anecdote from my own experience. In 1994... When I was at Morgan Stanley in Tokyo, I was part of a tech team we called it Fixed Income Research. And we had to have a weekly meeting with New York. And to do that, we installed very, very expensive technology. I'm talking very, like, so it was so expensive that the guys in New York were mad that we installed it. <laughs> That's how expensive. And this is at Morgan Stanley, which had a multi-billion dollar tech, uh, tech budget. And it never worked properly. Never. It was, we used to joke it was like having a conversation with the space shuttle where everybody was just kind of floating around really slowly. And now we can do this, where I literally can bring my studio, because you talk about this too, where I can bring my studio from Bangkok to anywhere in the world and make it look like I'm wherever I want to be. So how has just that type of technology changed the way businesses get run and get built? I think that now if you have an idea you can actually implement it instantly. So what you'll find is that those who are creative and those who have the ability to take the first step forward can create a business. And what you'll find is that people's ideas are now going to become a reality very, very quickly and very, very often. It's actually quite an exciting time because there's nothing holding you back. And, and that is why in the book I also talk about the you as a brand world is taking over from the corporate brand world. It's actually a shift in power. And, and that's the best part. I think it also talks about what are the skills needed these days to be a business. And it's not as much the tertiary education, educational skills, but more so the soft skills. 
how do you present, how do you talk, how do you communicate, how do you treat people, the soft skills are actually taking over because if you have soft skills, then you can bring together a team that has tertiary skills and actually run a business. It's a very exciting time. Can you talk about this deconstruction of the fourth industrial revolution, right? You break it down into three pieces, technology, client interactions, and employee empathy. And I want to get to the employee empathy at the end because I think it's actually really important and I don't think people talk about it enough, but talk at least first about the A and B, the tech and the client interactions, and then I want to get into the employee stuff. Well, the first thing that I also wanted to do is just say what the fourth industrial revolution was not or is not. And it's not about flying cars and it's not about teleportation and it's not about robots uh, doing somersaults because that (laughs) is actually (laughs) unreachable and it's unachievable for anybody. You know, you might as well be watching Elon Musk doing that kind of stuff. But, But more so at a grassroots level for us, what is the fourth industrial revolution? So what it is, is those three things. The technology that we have available to us at the moment is affordable and anybody can get it. So that's just such a beautiful idea. The next thing is how we communicate with those that we work with and how we communicate with clients. So gone are the days where you would fly across the world to have a meeting. Gone are the days where you would have to go visit your client or have your client visit you to to share an idea with them. Now you can just text them immediately. So, So how we communicate, how we find clients on LinkedIn and so on, how we interact with them is seamless and instant. And then also how we communicate and interact with those that we work with. Right. And and they don't have to come to a centralized office space. We don't have to wait until that nine o'clock morning meeting to share the ideas and how we're going to action today. It's instant. It's seven o'clock at night. You're getting a message. Somebody has an idea. They message you. Yep. So that whole dynamic of those three things is actually the fourth industrial revolution, in my opinion. So why does why does employee empathy matter? Why is that one of the pillars here? Are we suggesting that before employees, because you also use this, you say you want to change this idea of staff into work colleagues, right? Which is a big difference. Terminology matters. Yeah. So can you talk about why that matters and how that how that becomes empathy and why it matters? I had a look at current affairs that we went through over the last couple of years, Black Lives Matter, um, these sorts of ideas where the the um, it was the Great Resignation yep. was an idea, or was it was a thing. Why are these things happening? It's because people are realizing that they don't like the way that they have been treated. They don't like the fact that you are better than me. That is not fair. You know, there's a concept in IFRS 17 called fair value and and recalculating fair value. So what what is fair these days? And that is why the term staff is not fair anymore. Yeah. Because just because you have the business and I'm working underneath you, why should you refer to me as somebody who is less than you? Right. Am I not as important as you? I also want to seat at the table. So rethinking how we think of those that work for us or with us rather, and that's the whole point, isn't it? You yeah. don't work for me. In theory, I work for you. Right. Because if I'm not doing a great job 
then you're not going to do a great job. Then none of us are going to win instead of me barking orders at you. So there's the shift of I want to add value to the people that I work with, even though I'm young. And so I want to be treated with respect. So how do we actually think of those that we work with instead of barking orders at them? And that's the shift is the famous shift. Can I, again, share an anecdote with you about how that wasn't happening in some of the big companies where I worked? I remember a year-end dinner because the the senior people where I worked used to come out, you know, in November and December just to kind of give us reviews, warn us about our bonuses not being as high as we wanted them to be, stuff like that. And I remember because I was a part of the senior staff, we would go out to dinner with them, right? The rest of the staff, and I use that word on purpose now, wasn't invited. It was a table of like seven or eight people. And I remember sitting next to this really senior guy from New York and have him saying, I love when people who work for me buy a house or buy a boat and take on leverage. And I was like, I just was listening. I didn't understand why. And then he said, because it means I can pay them whatever I want because they need the money and they're not going to complain. And that was this idea exactly. of not having employee empathy. Go ahead. Absolutely. So that's the old way of thinking is I want you to be beholden to me. I'm the boss. I'm going to tell you what to do. It doesn't work these days anymore because it used to be, there used to be a time where if you left a job and you hadn't been there for five to six to seven years, right. the, the other employers would see that as terrible, unreliable, uh, insubordinate. This person moves around too much. We don't want to hire them. Right. They're a risk to our organization. And so the shift also happened where people that were hiring realized that even though somebody had only been working for one year somewhere or two years, it was actually okay if they had moved around a lot. Yeah. Because you almost don't expect people to stick around for more than three, four years. If they can just add value for that amount of time, that's good enough. Now, it has morphed since then. That it's okay if people have moved around. What you hope to do is find those great people and make them stick around for as long as possible, if not indefinitely. So the employees or those that worked or were looking for work actually gained power because before they were unhireable. But now it does it makes no difference. Somebody will definitely hire them, even if they've moved around a bit. So they're not scared to move. So that's the whole point. Yeah, exactly. And that's very empathetic. You mentioned in the book this phrase of, people talk about virtual offices or working remotely and saying that it's not possible. And one of the comments you make is maybe it just means that actually you don't know how to manage people remotely, which is a really good point, right? And I, I think this gets back to this theme of disruption, not just disrupting the businesses, but disrupting the way the offices work and stuff like that. Maybe you can give us what your definition is of disruption. This is a startup focused podcast for the most part. What really defines disruption for you and how is virtual actuary disrupting? So it comes down to the definition of the word disruption, which does get thrown around so quickly. Yeah. Here you've got this startup. They are pre-seed. They've done a raise of some sort, whatever it is, $5 million, whatever it is. Ooh, lolly, lolly, look at who they are. Right. And the heading of the article will be, this company is looking to disrupt the lemonade multi-billion dollar industry right and i think to myself well hold on a second 
just because they're getting started and they have a tech-enabled business does not actually mean that they are now set to disrupt. That is a very loose, irresponsible way to use the word disrupt, just because they have a tech-enabled business. So what I've tried to do is look at what does disruption actually mean? And what it actually means is that your methodology in this new business that you have taken to market is so much better than what is currently being done that even if your established competitors see what you are doing, they can't do it. They cannot do it almost ever. It's like the methodology and the concept is so great. They cannot just take it up and match you. Right. That is real disruption because if that is not the case, that your methodology and your, your system is so good, then all you've really done is market research for the big competitors right. in something that, that is fantastic. Right. Because then they can just go and say, you know what? We didn't realize that selling insurance via our smart watches was actually a great way to go about it. We didn't realize that putting a device on a bicycle is a great way to have telematics for our clients. That's a great idea. Let's just let's just put that in as a product or as a feature to our current business. Because all you've done is you've just added some R&D to your competitors. So that is not disruption. Right. Now talk about sort of the laundry industry. If somebody had gone overseas and bought some new fancy laundry equipment and they came back to their country and they rolled this out as a business, what you've done is you've created a, a great quick startup that is better than the way laundry is currently being done. But if there's an established player, they can also go overseas and source those products and bring it in. So that is not disruption. Whereas if you were actually an engineer who had patented a particular product and you were the only one that knew how to build that product and had a patent on it, ah, now you've actually disrupted your competitor's ability to make money. So you don't disrupt an industry, you service an industry, you actually disrupt your competitor's ability to make money. That is the definition, in my opinion, of the word disruption. Can you please run through this great example you have in the book of windsurfing versus kitesurfing? And one of the comments that you make after you tell this little anecdote is if they really felt that way, why wouldn't the kite surfer, I mean, the windsurfer turn into a kite surfer? And there are reasons why that works as well. But can you go through that example too? Because I thought it was really informative. I really toiled in my mind for a very, very, very long time how to give an example of disruption. Right. And I had, I had, I had like a concept that I ran past somebody very successful and he said, no, don't go with that. Don't don't explain it like that. So I didn't. <laughs> okay, I actually listened to him. So I came up with the the idea of windsurfing was disrupted by kite surfing. Right. Why? So back in the day, it if you wanted to beat something, you would make it bigger, larger, stronger in order to go further. Now, with windsurfing, those boards are very long, very big. The sail is big. The mast, the big pole, if it's called the mast, is big. And so kite surfing came in where they just changed the way that they interact with the wind and the water. And they created a smaller board with lines, actual like string lines 
and a kite instead of a sail. Yeah. And and once they started kite surfing, they could go much higher, much faster, much further with increased risk. It was significantly better. I mean, where a, a windsurfer could only jump three, four meters off the wave. Right. I mean, they literally clocked 36 meters the other day. That's like eight, nine stories. Right. Okay. So it's very, I mean, it's much better. And so what actually happened was kite surfing, people started doing kite surfing more than windsurfing because it was so much better. And also the ladies or those that that weren't as physically strong, let's say, could carry, couldn't carry the windsurfing boards to the to the water. Now they have a smaller board. You can go with your friends and, and take the kites. So you would think that since wind since kite surfing took over and disrupted windsurfing. And all the windsurfers would catch on to this and they would say, ah, this is so much better. Let's do kite surfing. However, what you have is a bias. What you have is an entrenched bias. I can't remember the term that I use in the book, but you have an inherent bias to say, well, actually, I'm not being disrupted. I like the way that I'm doing things right now. Right. This is the way we've always done it is one of the things you say, yeah. This is the way we've always done it. I like this. And they are so invested in, it. in the windsurfing already that to try to cross over and become a beginner now in how the new equipment works right. at this stage of their life is just not worth it. So it's very similar to a big corporate that can see that they are being disrupted by another company. But but the problem is the big corporate has been so successful so, for so many years that they actually brush off the disruption and convince themselves that they are not being disrupted, that in fact their way is actually better, and that this new company is just a fly-by-night. Right. And And that is actually quite encouraging for any startup to say that to be able to cross over to your new way of doing things is not actually so easy for the big ship, for the big corporate. Yeah which is very useful because they will underestimate your ability to actually beat them. And because swapping over is not so easy. I love this because I see it in my own business. I could not wait to have this conversation with you, right? Because, you know, my goal is to build the biggest media company in Asia that everybody talks about globally. And you may think, well, that's insane because you don't have the resources that these big media companies have, but they are so wedded to their current processes right? Which I love. Big studios in New York, big studios in LA, big studios in London, big studios in Berlin and in Tokyo. And I literally packed mine in a suitcase. Like you have no idea where I am right now. I'm in Fukuoka. I could be in Bangkok. I could be in Singapore. You have no idea. And I can do television quality sound and video whenever, wherever I want. And you're right. They could look at this and do it, but then what do they do with all of their producers, all of their cameras, all of this equipment that they've already bought, all this stuff that they're already wedded to, it's too late. And I feel like this is real disruption as well. And I think part of what you're doing when you talk about disruption is you're flipping something on its head. You're saying, here's the way we used to do it, but we're never doing it like that again before. And I love, that's why I love the windsurfing versus the kitesurfing. Because yeah, you would think that a windsurfer would just go to kitesurfing because it's so much more exciting and so much more fun and in a way, kind of way, and it's in a way harder to do, but they can't because you're right. They already have that board. They already have that sale and it's expensive to do, to switch. It's the perfect example. That's why I liked it so much. 
Fantastic. Thank you. Can we talk as well about your digital nomad experience? Because I think this also fits into like how building companies today is different than building companies even 5, 10 or 15 years ago was. And, and why it's important to have that experience. And just to say right up front, you don't, and neither do I, you don't fit the profile of what people think about, you know, some 19-year-old with a backpack and long hair and not shaving of a digital nomad. And yet, I've been in Fukuoka for two months this year at two separate times, right? And you're right. Sometimes it's hard to stay focused, but I'm still cranking out work every day. And I think it's actually good for the brain and good for the mind to be in a place where you don't live all the time. It frees your brain to think about new things. Sorry, go ahead. Why is this so important? And tell me about your experience as well. Well, the digital nomad experience is looking at your life as a lifestyle and the biz, your work that you do fits around that. Yeah. Instead of you work and you try and get out and have some lifestyle experiences. That's quite a big difference because the world has become a global market at the moment. Yeah. And there's no reason whatsoever where geographically and physically you should be forced to be somewhere. And so if you want to live in a residential area with beautiful trees, you can now do that. You don't have to live in a city to have the same opportunities that business had before. Yeah. You can still interact with like-minded business associates without having to go to the symposiums and the conferences in a particular area. So it's really a shift into what do you want your lifestyle to be? Yeah. Do you want to entrench yourself in one country? That's okay. Do you want to spend a few months of each year in different countries? That's okay. And this actually is the shift towards virtual um, meta living and, and actually where your mind is more important than your body. Yeah. And, and so the quality of the work that comes out of the mind is the most important thing. How do you translate that into real work? Well, you just have to plug into your real work digitally. You don't actually have to be somewhere physically in order for your mind to start working. So the digital nomad really is that you can be any, anywhere and everywhere. And so slowly but surely, I started realizing that I have an element of nomadic work in my life. Yep. I just spent about six weeks overseas. Now, I've also you have to also refine your ability to work remotely in different countries. I have four kids, very young kids. And the last time I actually traveled for work and we spent three months overseas was in 2017. At that stage, I only had one child. It was very, very manageable. Yeah. This time I have four. And so I did learn actually quite a harsh lesson when I came back last week, that it is actually impossible to go overseas with the small kids. They're all below six and a half years old. Yep. There's another one on the way, actually. And um, without a nanny or two, because it's just very difficult to work. So it's like a balance between how do you perfect the nomadic lifestyle? Yeah. Of course, if, if you don't have any children, it's different. But, um, but if you do have kids, you need that extra help. Can we dig deeper into this idea of building a personal brand? Like why it's important, how you do this, 
and why it has to be like a positive brand. And, and I'll tell you why about that first. There's so many people out there who build this brand where they seem to be just like complaining and moaning all the time. And I like to say your complaints are not commentary, right? If you're complaining, you're not being productive. So can you talk about why you build a brand and how you do this? Back in the day, you would always refer to what you do based on what your company marketing department was saying your company was doing. These days, when somebody wants to work with you or the CEO of a company or the senior people in a company, they will look at who is actually running the business and what do they stand for. So this goes with the concept of the you as a brand is taking over from the corporate brand. And what you'll find is that CEOs and heads of businesses that are online and are, are being more real are having a big impact on the quality of their company brand because the CEO's brand is positive, strong, humble, yeah. compassionate, but at the same time, very intentionally directional in how their business and they are changing the world. And you want to be able to reinforce that quality quality people running this business. And that's why you'll find where the heads of Alibaba and Apple and Microsoft and all these companies in Elon, it's not really as much about what their business is doing, but what the, the CEO says their business is doing. Yeah. So that's the first thing where the you as a brand is very, very important. Okay. Now, even if you're not a CEO, you need to be able to build your brand online as you as a business professional because if you do that correctly, it is your shop window as a business professional. This is what I do. This is what I've been involved in. These are the things that I'm up to. Anybody that wants to do work with you will see that. And where you work is inconsequential. Okay? So that's why it's so important to build a personal brand based on your professional work. Because if you do not do that, then something could happen to your business. And now the only way for you to actually find work or to tell people about you is to start sending your CV around. I mean, that is just so 1980s and 1990s. Yeah, That's not how you connect. That's not how people get to know you is your CV. Because the truth is a CV can be inflated. Yeah. Um, and, and you'll pick that up quite quickly in the first interview. So if you can, over time, create a presence online, that is very, very important for any business professional. Because burying your head in the sand is actually never the correct strategy. Yeah. And just because it's uncomfortable to have a presence online and be creating content or even commenting on content, it, a content that is uncomfortable, but if you don't do it, you're actually burying your head in the sand. So that's, that, that's definitely not the right approach. And then when you do put stuff online, whatever it is, video, articles, research that you've done, comments especially, what you don't want to be is that nudger, the nudger who always says something stupid and always has negativity about what they say and is always complaining about stuff. Because that is actually creating a brand for you online as the nudger. Right. As, now, I don't actually use that term in the book anyway, but that is not what you want. You know, if I'm going to be hiring somebody and I see that for the last year or two, or they have approached us and we're going to bring them into our business, 
But I've seen for the last year or two that all they've done is complain about the senior management in their business yeah, or way. complain about things. They've, they've, they're just constantly complaining. I know as a fact that if I bring them into the business and show them the love and build them up, if I just do one thing wrong, they are going to complain about it and tell the whole world about it. So that is a very negative stigma that is attached to you as a brand. You are unhirable as far as me because I've seen that you have negativity. It's actually like a cancer because it spreads into your organization. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't have these feelings about society and life and but absolutely talk about those things in a private capacity with friends at a barbecue, but don't put that kind of negativity online because it's very, very damaging for you as a business professional. I want to talk about the last part of this book where you talk about how to launch a business. And I want to start by saying, even when I was much younger, when I was a kid, that you couldn't learn how to drive a car by reading the manual. You just had to go out and do it. So can you talk about this in the context of launching a business and what the non-negotiable things are that one needs to actually do this? You can go to as many Harvard Business School management courses as you like. You can do as many innovation courses and degrees as you like, and you can read as many textbooks as you like. The main problem is that the people that are writing those textbooks firstly, are way older, and chances are they haven't actually done it themselves. It's all theory. And quite right, you cannot emulate the experience of stubbing your toe, reading how sore it is in a book. You have to stub your toe and understand that the next time you build a step, you're not going to put that little lip on because somebody is going to stub their toe. And so when it comes to building a business, unfortunately, you have to look at what is your absolute minimal starting point and then jump off the cliff. Just do it. And just do it. And so I forgot what the second part of the question was, but but what you cannot learn in a textbook is that you just need to do it because there's little things that are going to come in there. You know, one of the examples that I talk about in starting a business that I can think of now is that if somebody had worked in a distribution channel and they realized that every time the drivers came in, their pens were not working. Right. And that you realized that if you had a stack of pens available for them, you could just hand them out and they would never have that disruption in their process because they always have a pen that works. Now, you cannot learn that in a textbook. Right. You, you have to. Yeah. I was just going to say, you give another great example of this in the book. You, you said when you were working for other companies, you used to do business travel all the time, and you were sitting in the lobby. And sitting in the lobby, because you're traveling all the time, you said one meeting could take up to three hours, just all in, getting there, traffic, you can't predict, all this stuff, right? So you thought, okay, I have an idea for a business. I'll put a machine in every lobby, <laughs> that has high quality snacks, high quality drinks, you know, power drinks and stuff like that, because everybody must be going through this. I say this all the time. That was a great example. And I say this all the time as well. You don't know what your business is going to look like. And, and before you start it, you think, you know, but you definitely don't know. So start a business, start servicing clients, start trying to get paying clients, which is something else we can talk about if you want. But once you start doing that, your clients will start telling you the things that they need. That's your business. 
But you can't sit on the sideline and just go, I hope somebody tells me what they need. You have to be in business and be willing to kind of figure out and iterate. I was talking to somebody else about this this morning. Business is just like the scientific method at scale. It really is. You have a theory, right? You have a hypothesis about what's going to be useful, just like your machines in the lobby. You could put the highest quality snacks in there. Maybe that's not what people want, but you still have the machine there. And then when you're sitting there in the lobby and the next guy or the next gal comes in and says, I really wish there was a candy bar in there. Well, now you know, that's what they want. And I really don't want the power drink. I want a cola. Well, now you know. Now you're really in business. No? Exactly. Because if you have a business plan where you want to get some funding for your great idea and you then go and you build these machines, what could happen quite quickly is that you realize that the battery that you've used or the refrigeration system in the machine doesn't work properly because of X, Y, and Z. Now you've gone and you've invested all this money in, in, in these machines where you've realized that it's actually better business practice because they're too heavy. So now they're too heavy. People can't carry them up and down the stairs. It makes it impossible for the people that are replacing the sweets and the biscuits and stuff and the chewing gum there to replace it. So your better strategy is to have a lighter machine that has a different way of being filled up. Right. So the only way to actually work that out is to start off with a few machines and learn what's working and learn what's not working and adjust and correct. Yep. And that's where a lot of people go wrong is they believe that their starting point of business is forecasting spreadsheets of how this business is going to scale and make <laughs> 10,000 times X in year five. Right based on something that you haven't even practically done for one year. And and as much as it sounds funny, but most businesses start like that with a business plan to get yeah. an investor, and that investor expects those figures to play themselves out. So, yeah, I think one just has to start with one paying client and two paying clients and three paying clients and go from there. Because if you don't do that, then the expectation that your original business plan is perfect and going to play itself out results in a bit of a hot potato going on where the next person that buys into the business buys into the next projection. And hopefully if you play hot potato, hot potato for long enough and the business goes public, then hopefully the public won't mind when the share price falls off a cliff because actually fundamentally the business got off on the wrong foot. And and that is why in starting a business, the best is to rather start very, very small and get some paying clients and then grow from there. Could not agree more. Look, there's so much great stuff in this book. I want to just go through one more thing with you and then I'll let you go because we've been at this for a while now, but so much stuff to learn here. And I'm going to introduce it this way. I was doing a recording, I think I actually released this a couple of months ago already, where this gentleman said to me, I I want my company to be like Bruce Lee, like water. I want to be able to adapt. And he just went through this whole thing. And I like the idea of using the metaphor of Bruce Lee or the analogy of Bruce Lee. You also chose a character to give an example of, (laughs) of what you thought like a startup founder should be like, or what this idea of hesitating towards action as opposed to not doing something. Do you want to give the Lone Ranger example? and say why it matters Ah. okay we were talking about starting a business that could be disruptive instead of just a normal business yep and i was trying to say what is the mindset of somebody who wants to be a disruptor right now 
it's important to do a little bit of market research, but what you don't want to do is feel that you cannot get out of the starting blocks unless you have five friends that are willing to go on this journey with you. Because if that is the case, you are not going to get started and you are too reliant on what other people think to get out of the starting blocks. Yeah. And so true disrupt is somebody that has connected the dots in their mind. They've seen an industry, they've seen a, a system, a way of doing something. And they believe that if that is adopted in another industry or in their current industry, but done in this way, that it could be successful. Yeah. Now you don't always, you don't actually set out to be disruptive. You just set out to do well. And hopefully if you do well enough, you can be a disruptor. So I, I really thought about this for quite some time. I would say years. What is the mindset of a disruptor? And the Lone Ranger did come to mind. Why? Because the Lone Ranger was not reliant on anybody, yeah. but himself and his tools, which was his horse. And he's, his practice was quite simple. The village people are screaming. I'm going to go there right now and I'm going to sort out these bandits and I'm going to save the day and the village people will be happy and I will ride away and my job is done. And I will wait for the next group of people that need my help and I will go there and I will sort that out and I will ride away. And the Lone Ranger's goal is to solve problems by himself there and then and right away. Yeah. And that is actually the mindset of anybody that should be starting a startup is to say, I'm happy to be a Lone Ranger and get this going. And if you want to have a partner and you want to have somebody join you, let them join something that is already happening and something that is forcefully directional instead of you trying to bounce stuff off them and getting a consensus and then only getting started. So that is where the Lone Ranger idea came from. I want to leave you with this because one of the things I said to you before we started recording is that you're just, one of the reasons why I like talking to you is just because you're thoughtful and you're serious. And I could tell that when you wrote this book, you thought about every word. You went over every sentence. And one of the things you said about the Lone Ranger and this mindset, and I want to repeat it here, is the instinct to act without hesitation and tackle a problem merely because it exists. I want to end on that because I thought that was really an amazing statement. Adi Kaimowicz, the group CEO of Virtual Actuary and the author of a new book entitled Slaying Giants in the Mega Gig Economy, How Small Beats Big in Today's Business World. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you so much. <laughs>